This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. It's a classic whodunit. Which musician both frightened us on stage and terrified us on screen in the 1980s? There are no alternate endings. There's just one definitive answer. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name's Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. How are you, Ray? I am doing fantastic. Are you excited about our special guest today? I am excited. This is a big one for me. Yeah, so today we we have the we have the great pleasure of having a full hour to speak with Mr. Lee Ving, famed actor from the 1980s, and also happens to be the frontman of the legendary punk group, Fear. Well, I, I like how it sounded, like Fear. Like I could actually <laughs> make someone fear something. And since we've, he, Lee is going to be so generous with this time, I figure let's forego news, let's forego our usual silly nonsense, and let's just get straight to it. But before that, let's at least say subscribe to the podcast. Because we talk to plenty of cool folks, and if you subscribe, you'll be among the first to know when another episode comes live. Yeah, and you got to get over to the Facebook page, because there's going to be some surprises come up here pretty soon on that, too. Ah, including, unless this is what you're alluding to, and I'm about to blow it. Go ahead and blow it. (laughs) So, uh, following our podcast going live, we are going to post the video recording of the interview that we'll conduct with Mr. Vink. Excellent. Yeah. You get it. You have a brain... Because you're smart enough to listen to this show. (laughs) All right, so hey, let's get to it. Our guest today is the menacing frontman for the legendary punk rock band Fear. Their genre-defining first album, The Record, influenced punk bands in the 1980s and inspired a new generation of musicians, including Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl. His band's 1981 performance on Saturday Night Live was so explosive NBC shelved the footage for years and banned our guest from the show. But the 1980s also revealed that our guest had talent beyond his musicianship. Hollywood soon came calling, and the calm menace he perfected on punk stages was projected on 60-foot screens. In just a few years, our guest terrified us in roles opposite some of the biggest stars of the decade, including Jennifer Beals, Diane Lane, Willem Dafoe, Tommy Lee Jones, Christopher Lloyd, and many more. A calculated showman, skilled musician, and an actor with natural talent, please welcome to the show, Lee Vang. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, 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 no. Hold on, Lee. Hold no, on, that's, man. No, that, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> no I think we're going to have to add applause sounds now. And yes. Yeah. No applesauce. Just no money. <laughs> man, that was some, that had been some shows you get. They, they skipped the apple and went straight to the sauce. Oh, they were tossing at you. We're down to business here. <laughs> So, hey, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, we oh, realized hell, thank you, man. Thank you for being interested in this crazy kind of music and the, all the nutty shit that's happened on this music scene over the years. Yeah, and we realized when, you know, preparing to talk to you that there's too much to talk to you about between your music <laughs> career and your acting career. We could do, you know, several hours of interviews, but we'll try to keep it succinct. We, we thought just it would have be- to make it, break it up into episodes. <laughs> we would do that, yes. Um, but we figured, let's, you know, maybe we'll just start chronologically and hit some highlights, maybe try to pause on some things that you, uh, as far as we know, you know, there's still maybe some questions out there that fans want sure. clarified for them. So true fans of Fear and true fans of Leaving know so much about you, at least what you've revealed in, in the more recent years. We know you're a little more tight-lipped in the beginning. And you, you spoke about, you know, when you moved to L.A., based on your musical chops, your music experience, which was quite extensive by, by the time you got to LA, you saw punk bands and thought, 
hey, we can do better than this. They've got this amazing audience, but we could be a better group. That's pretty close to exactly how I was feeling. I was told by a friend to go and take a look at this club that doesn't have a sign on it. So you have to ask some of the locals where it is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a burnout basement just off of Las Palmas and Hollywood Boulevard. It's called The Mask. Mm. And uh, this, this buddy of mine went down there to check it out and his eyes were way open. He'd been around the scene since the 60s and uh, saw the whole Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, San Francisco thing happen and, and was now relocated to Los Angeles and uh, someone that I knew and recommended that I go take a look at this thing. He thought it was rather interesting from lots of viewpoints, yep. particularly in that I was trying to do something musically and uh, being in a different town. I had just moved from New York. Not, not as easy as it might seem. And so this, he, I think he was thinking of might uh, give me a hint as to, you know, what's going on in this town now, what might be a good idea, but it was light years musically away from what I had been involved with right. both in New York and, and what I was uh, interested in being involved with at that time, just having relocated new to Los Angeles. Right. It, it wasn't something that was going to be uh, a three three piece band with three chords and that's all it, it that that wasn't uh, something that drew my interest i wanted to show different styles of music in some blend that hadn't been heard before therefore tweaking everybody's interest something like that but uh, not necessarily this thing which was already seemed to to be going at least uh, noticed by brendan and uh, but as I listened to more of it, I began to see that there was some playing going on in some corners, albeit not pervasive, but at least it was there if you wanted to look for it. And uh, my idea for it sort of blended with the, the philosophy of it, uh, the, the philosophy of life of it more than like a musical philosophy, just uh, not giving a shit whatsoever mm -hmm. <laughs> being having all the choices that you are that are at your disposal up for consideration i mean all of them leaving none out right right so, which is so as perhaps to create this idea true or false that this person would consider and just might do any goddamn thing. <laughs> yes. Watch out for this son of a bitch, man. <laughs> well, that kind of answers the question I was going to go with because I was thinking, had your friend taken you instead to a different club where you saw a different type of music playing, again, based on your musical, musical experience, and many folks might not realize you were accomplished by then and certainly had, you know, musical chops that had you seen a different genre, a different type of band, would that have been maybe the one you said, well, we could do better than that? But maybe, like you're saying, punk had this element that other types of music wouldn't have had. Yes. It seemed like it had to offer the advantage of something that had uh, possibly a mass participation by a large number of people because of this, the simplicity of it, not limiting or, or closing anyone out, would be welcoming to everyone. Everyone would be able to understand this. You right. didn't need to. You didn't need to be Albert Einstein to uh, blend particle physics with this and quantum mechanics <laughs> about time signatures. It just didn't need that. It was just right in your face, and and right there. So I I wound up warming up to it and thinking, well, I'll take this part of it and that part of it and this philosophical piece and that philosophical piece, blend it into my rather strange approach to writing lyrics and, and subject matter for songs and see if I can make a go of that. And that seemed to work pretty soon. All these crazy ideas were making people laugh and then they were becoming songs and they were making me laugh. Right. I was amusing myself. I say a fair number of people didn't seem to, didn't necessarily get the joke, right? I mean, I mean, that's right. 
they wouldn't have understood that to me that a lot of this was funny because I had gone further than that in a lot of areas. But it was also, I was there, they were there, you know, so there's some interest that we share that's, yep. that's in common. And I wanted to find that and apply it. And I, I was able to and uh, put my thinking cap on and started to write lyrics in the style of this perhaps non-existent person that cared not for this, that, and the other thing, you know, very important to one's continuance as a participant on the planet, so to speak, you know, you have to, you have to join in at some point or, uh, you know, sometimes, Uh, but uh, it it lent itself to a very uh, interesting format for me, something I enjoyed. And I wanted to bring humor and uh, um, the the nuance of it to everyone's attention and see if I could get them to laugh while they were jumping up and down and beating the <laughs> hell out of each other. Right. So, uh, obviously, again, I keep talking about your musical background because... Uh, yes. Well, they're, they're, I'm, a, I'm a harmonica player. Right. I was in blues bands for years as the harmonica player and, and as the lead singer in many cases. So, that was something that I enjoyed and, and loved. And I had been in bands with all uh, bebop-style jazz players and thoroughly enjoyed that and uh, wanted to do something with it. I was in a band in New York with uh, a drummer named Bruce Ditmus, who had been in Gil Evans' band just prior to this, to us getting together, and uh, uh, a tuba player named Howard Johnson was in that band as well. And he played the shit out of tuba. <laughs> and it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't your um, sausage and sauerkraut. Right. Tuba. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a, a viable jazz solo instrument in his hands. And uh, he also was the bass player in, in that band that I was in. Uh, me and a lady named Countess Felder we would do things virtually like jazz standards, but put rock and roll sections in them mm. and, and, uh, and change it a bit. And we were finding decent success with that in the neighborhood. But uh, as I wound up moving out of New York and moving to California uh, uh, immediately after getting married and wanted to get the hell out of New York and freeze my ass off and getting, uh, you know, whatever, whatever diseases are popular that year, every, every year. Right. I wanted to get into a healthier place, and Los Angeles supplied that nicely. The, the rents weren't as quite as steep. Uh, there was more of an audience for rock and roll in L.A. than there was in New York pretty much, even though the radio was strong in New York and there was lots of rhythm and blues that had come up through and out of New York. That was, that was great and interesting to me. But uh, the, the punk rock thing was a brand new thing, something that hadn't been used to, to get out there yet or damaged to the point where it was repugnant to use whatsoever. Right. So it was still like a viable entity and I wanted to do something with it and wound up getting lucky, found good players made this band sound different than brand new beginning, absolutely inexperienced players. That's not going to get it no matter what kind of music we're talking about. Did you get a hard, did you, uh, did the other folks in the punk scene give you a hard time because right from the jump, you're already more musical. I mean, you got that punk sound, but you're, you hear harmonies. It's more melodic. Uh, you know, the, the, it's not your standard, you know, four, four time necessarily throughout the entire song. That's right. Virtually, virtually never. Yep. Times, <laughs> time signatures were like in seven and in nine and uh, back and forth. Uh, Camarillo's. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine. Right? It's yep. badass. It's, it's really cool. As soon as you stop doing the count over top of it, you can relax with it and feel how crazy it is. And for a song about a mental institution, what could be more fucking perfect? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I wonder if like folks, um, it sounds so different than punk, but so similar, but there's something about these types of jazz arrangements that are able to capture the energy that seems to be at the heart of punk, 
but did f- some folks give you a hard time and say, you know, you're not playing the same three chords. So no, no, if they, I, I would tell someone who would have taken an attitude of that kind and say, uh, well, if you don't know how to play at all, play for yourself and listen to that. That'll be completely basic, completely without any style whatsoever to damage the whole thing for you. Mm. And the gate goes out to hate brother. <laughs> um, so in addition to your musical training, you, you had this element of showmanship of marketing, uh, you know, the, the theatrical, you know, coming right into yeah. it. Was there something that uh, allowed you to develop that skill prior to getting to LA? Yes. Uh, uh, being in New York and having everybody have a hit single was uh, a part of the local activity, the daily activity. And so uh, to be able to bring sort of that wisecracking humor mm. to California where it wasn't so uh, recognized, you know, New York humor is recognized by New Yorkers, <laughs> not, not by lots of other people so much. <laughs> or, or therefore enjoyed or anything like that. So uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was something I was looking to, to put across in some way. And uh, the, the fact of the, the punk rock thing not looking like the, the end-all answer to everything or anything at all, for that matter, when I first heard it, was pretty funny that it wound up being the vehicle that allowed all of these disparate sometimes items to be placed together and to work together and to be able to interest people in hearing more of this thing. I know, Ray, you had a question about how uh, some of the planning in the... Uh, actually, yeah. I wanted to ask you about um, your stage. Um, when you guys would go on stage in the early days and insult the audience, right. um, going back to band practice, did you guys sit around, because this is what me and my friends would do, you're drinking beer and um, like you say, hey, I'm going to insult the audience. And then Durf, uh, God rest his soul, um, might say, well, I'm going to say this. Um, was there like a moment in time where you guys were just going back and forth in like the house, just drinking beer? Or did this like you were on stage trying to one-up each other? How did that come about? No, it, it wasn't exactly as, it wasn't com- competitive between us so much. And I was uh, glad for the relief if Philo would have some long joke that sort of never ends to, to tell, you know, and that could go on and on, and which lent the perfect opportunity for me to cut him off and go, what are they, what are they, what are they? And the yeah. whole band come in right in the midst of Philo going, and well, because, you know, man, because like yeah. when something like that happens, I have to remember what the punchline was. What are they, what are they, what are they? They're not yeah. pay attention to him virtually at all. And, and Durf would draw me in and we would argue, uh, not argue, but, you know, use this disparity for entertainment purposes. And, uh, and he had a, a good, a pretty good handle on it for playing the bass. He's a good bass player. And uh, I, I heard him playing with trashy Teddy and the dog shit Canyon all-stars. <laughs> That's where, that's the musical ensemble from which he came, gave, gave him rise to fear. So most of us, uh, you know, our first exposure to you and seeing fear live, cause we weren't lucky enough to live, live in that area and certainly be in those clubs at the time was seeing you in, in decline. Um, yes. And, uh, and then, so 81 was a huge year for, for fear. You were in decline. And then, uh, oh. shortly thereafter you were on SNL, but. I, I, right. And we had our album coming out. And we right. had the decline of Western civilization. The film came out, uh, right. uh, which we played a, uh, a controlling part of the soundtrack. Right. And, and that was great. So we had this album come out that uh, conjuncted with the film. That was great. And then we had the Fear album come out. So right. that, was, that was all to the good. And we met John Belushi. In the meantime, he gets us on Saturday Night Live. Yep. And that was, I mean, you know what an incredible boost that is to anybody. Yeah. Just, it, it, the, whole, yeah. the whole show was set up on the on the premise of like some overnight musical thing happening because that's who they had as musical guests all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and people who had been banned from the show were like the Rolling Stones, uh, 
were other artists whose names I forget, a couple of female singers also were banned from the show. And what happened to us during our uh, Saturday Night Live performance had virtually nothing to do with us. It came, <laughs> right. it came from, from John, rest in peace, inviting them that he knew from, from going to Washington, D.C. to check it out because he was an intensely uh, active fear uh, punk rock fan. He really right. liked the, the form. So he had been down there and he had saw what, seen what was going on. He invited them to the show in, in numbers of about 100. That's what, that's what closed the show, <laughs> not us. We didn't say anything off color or something that you couldn't say on NBC or right. any of that. And the, the thing of the kids coming up and being on the, on the, the stage and saying something really not okay right. for broadcast standards. You know, the, I dropped the microphone completely by mistake. The stage is crawling with these kids from Washington, D.C. who were put in the front row by John. This, was, this is orchestration that's just perfect, man. <laughs> this is all about to happen. You could feel it. You could sense it. You could hear it in the air, in the silence. And, and uh, he, he brings them in. We play the first two songs without their audience. We play the second two songs with them. As soon as I, go, I get in the first syllable of one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, they're up on the stage throwing each other off the stage. Yep. <laughs> and and ev everything is happening. I get through the first song. We get to the second song, which is Let's Have a War. And I count that off. And in the middle of Let's Have a War, I drop the microphone. One of the kids picks it up, puts it up to his mouth, and screams, F New York. <laughs> Wasn't me. I didn't put him up to it. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even think it was John. I don't think anybody put anybody up to this. This kid was smart enough yeah. to see. He's on NBC yeah. in New York City. This is going out to millions of people. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> it's a punk rock move. Well, That's right. Yeah. What should I do in a situation like this? What does the punk rock book of ethics say to do in a situation? <laughs> you like you this? should have blamed it on Tesco V. That should have been yes, your move. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to give anybody any you know unnecessary <laughs> advertising on this. We want to sort of all hog it to ourselves if we could. Yeah, so, to your to your point, I admire the great composure that you had during that performance when folks are jumping on stage, because I, I don't know, but I imagine, you know, in, in, in the decline of Western civilization also, you know, regardless of what's they happening. They were in the decline. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that was even worse. My, I imagine. What I would imagine is, in hearing stories from somewhat from Ray and his bands in the past, there would be a fist fight at some point where, you know— uh, yes lead singer or guitarist would be, you know, throwing down with somebody, but on the show, sure. you know, whenever, regardless of what was happening, like you said, you were on the level the whole time. So well, I, I wanted to make sure that there wasn't something like, uh, like this was different, right? This is NBC. This is going out to the world. Numbers are much bigger. Would there be, uh, you know, if you got in a good old fashioned fist fight with somebody, yeah. with the idea of whatever happened would be okay as long as there were no real cheap shots pulled and everybody was in it with this code of ethics that said it was a fight. Whatever happens is okay. Not like the next day I'll sue your ass, man. Oh, That's yeah. the first yeah. thing I'm going to do, yep. you know, and, and all this other thing. And in, in, at that point, we didn't know where we were uh, career-wise, you know, was something big about to happen. Good things were happening we didn't want to give it away in a stupid lawsuit to somebody that didn't understand what, what was going on yeah. or didn't have a sense of humor about it all, which is required of a fear audience member. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've heard you talk about the, the show and uh, famously how, you know, John was so into fear, but I, I don't know. I've heard you speak about what it's like to get that phone call from someone or from John himself to say, you know, would you do a song for neighbors or, or, you know, I, I love the band. Uh, let's work together. Right. Yeah, let's write a song together or, or something like that. And we spent a oh, good week in Cherokee Studios, world-class studio. Uh, are you, Bruce Robb was the, uh, one of the family members who owned the studio. Lots of famous recordings were made there. And, is, your, uh, is your mind blown when you get a call from John Belushi? I mean, he's like the biggest star, you know, comedian, uh, comedy star at the time. 
absolutely. And I, I was a fan of his way big time. Appreciated the humor like crazy from Animal House yep. and all that stuff uh, and every other thing that they did. I thought it was just great. And uh, it, it was really sad. To, to have lost such an incredible talent, yes. especially someone that was so into making sure that they could do everything that they possibly could to help you guys get across. Right. You know, it was all, all of that concocted in the, in the tragedy. Right. Yes. Yes. We, you know, an amazing story of generosity on the part of, again, one of the world's largest stars at the time. That's right. Um, Scooping, reaching down out of heaven in a in a portrait picture somewhere hanging in the Louvre or in the Vatican, the hand of God reaching down out of heaven to grab up these four disparate riffraff punk rockers <laughs> and bring them back up to heaven with mm. him and with John. Mm. I know, Ray, you had a question about, so you mentioned that John visited Washington to check out the punk scene, and I guess that's where he hooked up with Minor Threat. I know Ray had a question as to whether or not you, because you're out in L.A., uh, are you familiar with the other scenes? It's not like today where yeah, social actually media would... my, my question is, is um, I've heard Tesco V uh, on stage in the last, I don't know, five or six years. He's actually said Fear's going to be here next week. Go check him out. How long have you known him? Or is he like just a big fan? Uh, God bless him. I'm, I, I think that, that Tesco and I met uh, one, uh, during one of our uh, national tours or, or one of our uh, times of being in Washington, D.C. to play or one of, the, one of the times that he came to Philly or New York to see us play. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is something that, that I, I, I recall speaking to him and uh, I, I was just happy to be talking to anybody that was doing something <laughs> on the scene at, at that yeah. time. And um, I was unaware that he was trying to help us by saying, you know, fear's going to be here next week. That's very, very <laughs> cool. That's very punk too. Cause we're, yeah. you know, obviously not going to be there next week. And, uh, <laughs> well, like I said, this is a couple of years ago. Isn't, isn't that just perfect? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, sh shortly after, you know, you're, you're, you're put now, you know, America knows fear. Uh, you make the transition from, or, or add to your repertoire, uh, actor. How has it come to, uh, how does it come to pass that you go from terrifying people from the stage to terrifying them on screen? <laughs> uh, a sheer good luck. <laughs> there happened to be uh, this, this movie that wanted to accompany a recording that, Maybe I'll make the story a little shorter. Bob Biggs and Penelope Spiris were an item at this point. We made a record for his record company and a movie for her movie for her movie. Right. And so we made the decline of Western civilization in film. We got the post position, you know, she gave us like the headline position in order of fire in the movie, like you would on a live show night. Mm. We got the headline act position. Very cool. This, the, the film sounded good. A lot of time was spent on the mix. Bruce Robb was involved on that mix at Cherokee Studios. You know, all kind of big, big people are in Cherokee Studios all the time. They're cutting edge at that time. And it, it, it wound up sounding great. And we wound up making the movie. I wound up meeting Malcolm McDowell. I had a friend at... William Morris Agency. His name is John Burnham. He's probably a controlling partner in that agency at this point, but was instrumental in having me asked to become a member of William Morris Agency and to be booked by them. <laughs> There's no bigger NB for no brainer in the whole wide world than that this is an unbelievably incredible opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime storybook material. Pinch yourself, Bubba. See if you're still alive. <laughs> and they're looking to represent you as an actor, you're saying? Yes. Wow. So, and this is sight unseen. They hadn't seen you perform anything at this point other than on stage. Uh, lead, well, John, fear. Al John already worked for them. John Burnham already right. worked for them. 
and he and I were friends, and he and Penelope were friends, and it was a little closer Hollywood kind of thing at the time. And, and there may have been one acting performance that happened where I needed an agent. And John said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll do it for you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he's doing it for me. I have John Burnham acting as my agent at William Morris Agency. Wow. How did you put this together, kid? You know, play stupid for us, okay? <laughs> act, act dumb or something. It's not working. <laughs> I know you. The, the wheels are turning behind them blue marbles, man. How did you fucking put this together? <laughs> and, and it was a storybook story like that. John Burnham became my agent at William Morris Agency. And I got flash dance, Streets of Fire, uh, with uh, Willem Dafoe and... Uh, and Emilio. And, and Emilio Estevez and, and, and the director. Un unbelievable that I would get to work for that director. Just, just incredible. The, the streets of fire director. Right. Just unbelievable. So and with uh, shooting flash dance, um, and, and again, you know, this story you told about William Morris agency, I don't know how folks could know that the, you know, this electric, this magnetic, uh, energy that you threw off this, you know, uh, devil may care sort of, uh, personality, that you could do it, it in front of, of a camera. Bore a hole in the rules of the and regulations of the industry. You know, you weren't allowed to do that. Yep. You had to be a pleasant person, a family <laughs> kind of guy. You know, you had to be warm spirit. Yeah. You had to be kindly, merciful. <laughs> uh, the Spanish have words for it: uh, agradable, amable, uh, simpatico. Those three words. Right. You know, you had to be all of those things in order to interest. Right. In in one iota, some organization like William Morris, right. and here I was just like uh, I was, I was I was joined. Uh, what are we looking for? A good fellow half, term here? Half weighed in. <laughs> it's a business, oh, yeah. <laughs> a business word. I see. I, I know. I know. President Trump would know it in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the businessman. Uh, but in flash dance, you know, hey. You you seem like you're Johnny C. So they they, they were smart. I knew I knew lots of things like <laughs> the, like that organization in growing up. Yeah, you know I'm an Italian kid from Philadelphia, sure. and I had experience in uh, in in being in the bars and you know what the social thing was was like out on the street and all that sort of thing. I was no stranger to it, yeah. and I saw lots of it in what was probably. Uh, uh, Johnny C's world, you know, it was uh, it was legal only to a very small degree what was going on in his bar. Probably, uh, he paid attention to the law wherever he absolutely had to, but n in no other cases. And uh, you know, was probably uh, had had experience fighting in his life. You know, fist fights. Sure. Uh, probably packed 25 hours a day, never went anywhere without his car keys or that. <laughs> and and uh, so, so I, I, I did bring like an acumen of, yeah. uh, you know, street uh, knowledge to the part, which I think was perfect for this part for that guy. Yeah. Fortunately for me, because it was one of the first parts. So if you get to do more with the part, they think, well, yeah, maybe he could do this, that, and the other thing. We'll hire him for that, too. Yes, sir. Bingo. Bring it. Right. Is it true that you were so convincing on set that you scared Jennifer Beals? Entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have limited whatever it was that I was doing or saying to avoid that yeah. <laughs> in all situations. Well, no. Yeah. And uh, out of humor and, you know, wanting to see how – how streetwise perhaps she was or something akin to that may have been the reason to, to test those things out. But uh, just for your general knowledge too, when you're, you know, you, you want to know someone when you're going to be speaking with them as though you know them, the more you actually can feel that way, the better. Right. And so uh, in the idea of like uh, introducing ourselves honestly to each other, it may have, there may have been a, a sense of trepidation experienced by one of us, <laughs> not me. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say in Jennifer Beale's defense, in every film I think I've ever seen you in, I was scared as a young person of what, just like you're saying about your performances and fear that you, anything could happen by this character. You've got this twinkle in your eye and a little smile that, yes. you know, you, you're just a, a line away from punching somebody or something. That's like. it. And people don't want to trust that something's not about to happen. Yeah, yeah. That's the place I want them. They're more receptive to the mellifluous, <laughs> magnificently beautiful music I write in that condition. <laughs> it's a psychological game you're playing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and I want to ask you this. So, also in '83, and two th- two things of interest that happened within a year of time. And I'll put it this way to you: What do you think was more surprising to Fear fans at the time? You singing and playing harmonica with Tom Scott. Or seeing you sing a song from Man of La Mancha on Fame. Yes. And those are both, uh, you know, again, surpri- I think surprising moments, uh, you know, from someone who we're used to. The impossible oh. to fight pure and chaste from afar, mm-hmm. to sing with our last dance of courage. What a beautiful song. Oh, I mean, yeah. To- just by itself, a beautiful song, mm-hmm. but all the all the trappings that came with it—it was—it it was no underground song, you know—and yeah. it was a mega world hit, and so all of it was great. And the and the doom 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 doom, doom the song I did with Tom Scott was oh, yeah. singing the blues and driving my shoes when I moved to New York. I thought there was all kind of music there, and I thought it was every song. Well, it seemed like somebody put out a guitar, most anyone you see. Well, they only wanted to play Night in Tunisia or Green Dolphin Street. I was buried alive. No one could survive. I got to get out of New York. I was buried alive. No one could survive. I got to get out of New York. You know, it had a little bitty, just slight shaving of a hip hop thing. Oh yeah, in, in that in yeah. that middle break part. Mm-hmm. But Tom is a consummate bebopper, man. He is yeah. not part of any of that shit. You know, it's it's like dyed in the wool, very beautiful, full on, no departures, bebop, absolutely. You Did know, that. and and plays Did- the shit out of it. Did you do that to prove that you were more than a punk rocker? Is is that part of it? Or just to prove to people that you could do whatever you wanted? No. I I, I saw the fact that it might speak that I did whatever I wanted, no matter what, hmm. right in the face of anybody. Punk rockers, jazzers, mm-hmm. you name it. I don't, I don't select. I'm a broad-spectrum antibiotic. I'm looking for anybody that wants to be insulted, <laughs> and I'm that's what that's the end, all right there. And and so it 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 worked out, uh, yes, partially for that reason. Like it looked, I I wasn't caring, but what it was also was that Tom Scott and I were collaborating on something that meant something real to both of us. Everything I do musically is something real. That, that I mean to do purposefully. It's not just to piss anybody off. That's icing on the cake. I just want, I want to do it because I want to do it first. Then the other stuff is welcome to, I'll be happy to admit to it. Yes, indeed. That's very true. That was also, that was part of the decision too, I have to admit. Yes, indeed, Bob, that's great. But I wanted to play something with Tom. I wanted to hear him solo over when I stopped singing. Tom Scott's playing, man. This ain't no fucking, uh, you know, just, this ain't no brand new tenor that this guy just broke out and he wants to know how it sounds. This is a whole <laughs> lifetime of, of blood, sweat, and tears, no pun, to, uh, that, that's that been put in place here. And you're going to hear that same thing out of the both of us. Hmm. That that was the motivation. So we, we talked about, uh, you know, some of the film roles you had, including uh, Streets of Fire in 84 and, and numerous television appearances. And then somehow, and I'm curious how, Again, now you had a, you've got somewhat of a pedigree developing here now in the film industry, of course. Somehow you wind up in a film with Eileen Brennan, Madeline Kahn, Martin Mull, Christopher oh, Lloyd, Lou. Tim Curry. How did you pull <laughs> that off? Man, it was, it was 
more of uh, a uh, literary uh, thing in, in as in as much as like uh, it was it was just set up that way as a board game and as the people playing the part of the board game and from the time in history that it came from like the 30s or the uh, late 20s mid 30s or something there was uh, so many things going on in the world different kinds of things and then what i got to do was be more of like a 50s or 60s mafia style mm. criminal because nobody involved in the production of the film or maybe nobody involved in having written the idea, the, the clue idea to start with, would have had any knowledge of what criminals were like in the 20s and 30s and then what they were like in the 60s later on. You know, once the mafia got its hand on things, the American mafia did, styles changed. And I, I loved it. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I wanted to be able to uh, have a chance to play that as an actor. That, that was very inviting. Now, were you involved when uh, John Landis was still the director, or at what point are you cast? I did every day with the eventual director, Jonathan Lynn. And he's consummately involved with tradition, you know, with what's been written from the classics and how those are staged and how those beautiful, incredible lines are delivered in Shakespeare. Right. And, and all of those things. Uh, John Dunn, and, you know, I mean, forget it. All, all of a sudden now, uh, I'm uh, in, in an effort to perhaps entertain the director who has access to lots more areas of creativity. I'm starting to stretch myself out a bit. I'm going back and I'm reading this, this thing from a Shakespeare play that had skipped my mind or something of, of late, and I wanted to be able to access that at just the right moment while making some incredible wisecrack to uh, uh, the the short-skirted maid <laughs> in, in oh. Clue. What what was her name? She's That's, just beautiful. Uh, Colleen. Um, Colleen Camp. She's just beautiful, and yes. so like uh, to to give uh, more credence to the things that I got to say based on the script, I wanted to look into it a little more. Mm. And, and I thank Jonathan Lynn for making that be something that would uh, be useful and, and accept it and, uh, and, and make my performance better. It, it, it all worked out very well. Right. And how do you feel? I don't know if you've heard that they're now working on a remake. Ryan Reynolds and his production folks are looking to remake Clue. I don't know what, what that means if they look at your uh, version or they start from scratch, but uh, so right. next well, how many versions of Clue had there been? Was was ours like the second or third? Yours was the first, although you know that sort of it, the Clue but reminded me of uh, the board game, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Yes, yes, yes. Right, there was the board game. So, yes, so that was that was the tradition of it. Not really yeah. any lines or script or anything. It was scripted to make this movie. Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if they're going back to the board game or they're, you know, Ray and I always have this conversation. Whenever they touch anything from the 1980s, we get a little concerned because, you know, we think it's probably and, and just fine. Yeah, and immediately I say, no, leave it alone. Yeah, right. It's perfect the way it is. Right, because the, the 80s was very new wave and yep. the 80s was also very punk and the very the twain shall fucking ever meet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And now, yeah, I guess they're trying to recapture or take advantage of the leverage, the nostalgia surrounding it. Then we get, you know, suspicious right. of it. Then you get to mix them up. Yeah. But yeah. it's, uh, it was, uh, the new waivers were looked askance at by the punkers. That's for sure. Right. So, and then Ray, Ray and I talked about this before. Was it the idea that at one point we had, it was our understanding that punk had a hard time getting on the radio. So some folks became new wave just to get past, you know, the, uh, the uh, programmers. You weren't going to get on the radio if you came out screaming fucking shit. <laughs> and, you know, talking, talking graphically about the sex acts, yeah. you know, yeah. and, 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 and the, the perverted sex acts and all the mm. other stuff that's not going to get on the radio, just not going to happen. So, <laughs> but, but I saw the Ramones getting on the radio big time. 
and their stuff was didn't have precluded having things in it that would keep them off the radio. So I started to, to make sure that I was doing sort of the same thing, but not, not in every way. I would still put some curse words in there and the subject matter would be a little blue. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you can compare yourself to the the radio version of the Ramones. I no, mean, you guys no. are, you guys are a different breed. You really That's, are. That it, it was true, and it was set out to be that way. Yeah. You know, inv- inviting them to come up and fight was real. <laughs> I wanted them to, and it wasn't going to be for nothing. I don't know, think anybody they came wanted up to fight. fight you. It was. It was. I, I would train to make sure that I could. I could dish it out if I had to. Uh, you looked the part. Yep. I, I certainly felt it. I wanted every bit of it, <laughs> yep. you know, and that all, all the great fighters were my heroes, Evander Holyfield mm-hmm. and Mike Tyson and, and, and all that. I was uh, big time into it. And boxing is, is tremendously popular in Philadelphia. It always has been, always will be. And that's uh, the other thing I liked about the boxing community in Philadelphia was that it was an intensely allied to other organizations that had become popular or useful uh, or instrumental, shall we say, in mm. Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But we'll let that go. Yes, yes. <laughs> I understand. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I think that's what you do when you do it. So yeah. in 85, you uh, you wind up moving to Austin, Texas. Yes. And uh, you go a little, a slightly different direction uh, where you're now fronting the, I've seen it described as outlaw country. Is that a yes. proper way? Range of, war. Yes, Range indeed. war. Right. Yeah, range war. And although we know you worked on a, you recorded a record way back then, uh, we didn't get to hear it for some time. Um, there wasn't much recording of it going on right away. Oh, I see. Then uh, eventually it, it did get recorded. We, we did do a Range War album. And uh, my buddy who lives in Austin, who's a songwriter, Michael Blue, wrote a couple of things I want to do with it. I'm going to tell you a story about country that I know. Well, I ain't <laughs> talking about leather hat bands or the buckles plated with gold. Well, this song's about honky-tonks, and this song's about to begin. This song's about cheating. C-A-T-A-T-I-N. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite off that album is uh, No Right to Do Me Wrong. I think that's oh, the one yes. I like the most. Well, that... Mm. That's all right, but you ain't got no right to do me wrong. Yeah, oh, I, th- I think I think that one's <laughs> right down the vein of that. If that was on the radio today as a country song, I think it'd be a big hit. I really yes, do. I think so too. And I thought it would be back then. We just didn't, <laughs> didn't get didn't get lucky on it. But what yeah. about the? Oh shit! There's a couple of beer songs on there that. that there's a, uh, if you're involved, be. there's at least two beer songs on the album. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh what is it? Uh, king of the twelve ounce bottle. Oh yeah. Well, you I'm the king of the twelve ounce <laughs> bottles. Oh, it's a sad song, <laughs> and it feels like I'm fading fast with a beer in my foot on the <laughs> throttle. I'm the man behind the amber glass. <laughs> Now it made me quit singing and writing, and I didn't know what to do then. But there weren't any use in my fighting, cause the bottle's mightier than the pen. And I'm the king of the 12 rounds bottles. Oh, shit. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, side note, whenever, uh, when, I, when my band would run out of beer on stage, we would break into the part of more beer. Oh yeah! More beer, more beer. More beer. <laughs> All I want is, is yeah. So that was our cue to the bartender to bring us more beer, and we played that like three times a night for five years or something. It was yes. great. Yeah, utilitarian song. <laughs> it, it works great. Yes, <laughs> keep Very that practical. beer flowing, man. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, dipping out of the... So again, you did so much in the 80s, we can't possibly cover it all. But there's some other interesting things, you know, that you've done in your life. There's too many things. <laughs> and too many questions. But I am curious about... Uh, so, you know, obviously... Um, and I think, Ray, you had a question about this. In uh, in 95, you you, uh, you joined with Dave Mustaine to do uh, MD45. Yes. Um, and... We know you. You rec- the original recording has you singing, you playing harmonica on it, and at some point, I think in the early two thousands, Dave remasters it and does the vocal himself. Yeah, 
Now, yeah. in, in fairness, Lee, I like both versions just as much because I love Dave. I love you. The, the part about this that bothers me is that they re-release it as the same album. Right. Mm. And with uh, without any notification or oh. preparation as far as like notifying the, the guy that sang it first. <laughs> right. He's concerned. <laughs> you know, and the, I, I don't recall. I may have even written some of that shit. Yeah. I think you did. Yeah. I think he gives me credit for it. I think he does, but yeah, but that other was sort of like a, a, a semi untoward, if you will. I don't know what else to call it, but yeah. it was, uh, it, it could have been handled better. I thought. So I take it. He's never responded to you or talked to you about it since. No, not reached out in, in practically any way, but, uh, what the hell we, we may have even played a show since then hmm. opening up for them or something. I, I, wow. I don't recall. Because as, as I've heard, he's a he's a fan of fear. Yes, has always been. Yeah. It was, you know, that was that was among the most obvious points to begin with. It was it was it was nice to to see this guy who had done so much, you know, uh, giving props to me for for what, what I was trying to do and uh, and wanting to do some of it himself. I can't really be too angry at him. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that was pressure from his fan base. So could easily have been, or, or, or from, you know, managers that he was dealing with at the time or, or, or right. who knows what. Which but, that would probably explain why he's never called you. Cause he's embarrassed that he, he did it to you. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't need to meet to be embarrassed. I'd be happy to hear from him. In fact, if I knew how to call him, I would just, to, <laughs> you know, get pressure off the matter and we could, uh, you know, be what friends that we could be. Nice. Are you still listening to, to current music? Are you, my general feeling about it is it all stinks, but I mean, do you try to listen to new bands and? Yes. I find that the, the repetition in, in hip hop, not always entertaining to me. I find myself saying, man, I wish he wouldn't do that like the identical way that he mm. just did it and right. do it again and then again and again. But there's recording techniques that I'm hearing that I'm interested in because it makes me wonder how he did that. That sounds pretty cool. Right. I'd like to be able to do that, put this kind of thing here over there. I'll look slightly differently, but I'd like to know how he did that. That's great. Uh, the whole thing is about around the same percentage range of what's being released as, as what I'm a fan of as, as used to be in the old days, okay. back in the days of the blues bands when, uh, you know, I was the other people I was listening to were like uh, little Walter, junior Wells, and uh, uh, people, uh, Paul Butterfield, Charlie Musselwhite, you know, the blues harmonica players. Right. That, that's my basic thing with it. But also I'm interested in uh, the chromatic harmonica player and uh, the people who have done that so brilliantly, you know, to include Little Water and, and other people who don't do it in the classical way. But, uh, you know, I've heard just beautiful music. Uh, the Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue played by two or three, uh, Toots is one of them, but Toots is also jazz capable. Uh, th these guys, uh, the other two I'm trying to think of are classical players, period. Um, and, uh, but the, the music, the, the Gershwin piece by uh, this one chromatic harmonica player and by another are just fabulous, un unbelievably beautiful. Are, are there folks still making punk rock as we understood it in the 1980s? I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't say that I've heard something that sounds like that nah, in nope. recent weeks, months, or or year or two. I don't know that that's something that's got a bunch of bands doing, out scurrying around doing. Yep. I, I love some pop punk, man, but I don't hear anybody doing it like the 80s. No, I, I, I don't either. But I, I'd like that. I think it'll, it'll always be in the repertoire of, of uh, humorous places to go to, uh, mixing it with things. And, and having done and, and, and still wanting to do things similar to the way we dealt with it before, using it to our advantage. And, uh, and so that it's obviously uh, a, a sign of respect and, and an attempt to ally ourselves with something having to do with the punk world from then or from now or from whenever. But we're not ashamed of it. We're proud of it. And uh, we'd look to continue even if it was just a thing that sounded so obviously punk that I would just be using it to make sure people recognized it as that 
and us doing it, us using it. Right. I like all of that. Yeah. Uh, are Are we going to get one more Fear album out of you? Absolutely. All right. At least one more. Absolutely. And I'm I'm uh, I have a an A and B sided single or maybe a three song EP that wants to come from it. And I, right. I'm writing those lyrics now. So, in, without giving too much away, of course, uh, what what do you write about now at this? point in your life as compared to you know what you did when you were you know i guess in the, in the early 80s he's gonna write about beer come on <laughs> that's right there, there will always be a nod to beer yeah, there better be <laughs> and there will always be a nod to the difficulty that we seem to find as human males with the females of the species <laughs> oh the, the mouth same, don't stop the same, the same disconnects that have happened low these many centuries, sometimes <laughs> yep. still presenting here and now. That's uh, that's actually a, the, one of my favorite songs off the More Beer album, The Mouth Don't Stop. <laughs> There's a sinister feeling brewing <laughs> that a woman in a nonstop yap in a couple weeks she'll be stewing. Bait the hook of a tender trap. You spend your money on countless reasons. Brick or bracket cannot be used. Snivel on the ground that she walks on. Give an inch and the woman wants two. The trouble today with women, the mouth don't stop. <laughs> so thank if, you for that. If we're going to hear uh, more fear, I mean, obviously that's amazing news. What about the acting side? Is there, are you looking to get back into that? We'd love to see you on screen again. Absolutely. I have a continuing willingness to, to, to mm. participate in the acting industry. And uh, by virtue of such activity, snuff all the other performances that are being given out there in favor of this do-it-yourself kind of rely on on your instincts approach mm -hmm. to being a film actor. Right. I've seen uh, I've seen uh, stuff online that you're going to be in the new Danzig movie, uh, Death Rider and House of uh, the Vampires, whatever it is. Are, are you in that movie? I've I've not spoken about it with Glenn. Yeah. As yet. But I'm not sure I didn't hear something about that. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be checking out my message pipelines. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be sending a message to Glenn. You definitely should because you belong in his movie. Oh, uh, this would be great. Uh, there's no place I'd rather be. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I see you still got luck. And I'm, when Ray and I talked about reaching out to you to get to hopefully to speak to you, um, Ray said, you know, he's a really intense guy. And I said, hey, we're yeah. going to be on the phone. He can't hurt us long distance. <laughs> right. and, and Ray said, that's not true. He could still hurt your feelings. I, I've seen you live. <laughs> I've seen you live and you were intense and it was awesome. One of the best shows I've ever seen. Oh, I saw you, you uh, at the Euclid Tavern in Cleveland. It is one of the best shows I've ever seen. It, it made my day because you are actually one of my heroes growing up that got me into punk. And, you know, it's just amazing that we got to talk to you tonight. And oh, man, it, it is it is for me, too. I'm always pleased to speak to somebody about it, because it, even as, as big as some of the things that have to do with punk rock have gotten, it's still just a microcosm compared to, you know, what what heavy metal is or what some yeah. other scenes have been. And so there's like tons of virtual room for expansion. And I always look forward to try to, you know, get involved in that if possible. Yeah, it's just crazy that I've, it's like I've known you for decades, but never actually spoken to you. So uh, for me, this was really cool. For me too, man. For me too. And thank you for having me, brothers. This was very cool. Wow. So in spite of his reputation, in spite of what you've seen on film throughout the 1980s, including the videos, uh, the films that doc have documented the, the performances of fear, in spite of you telling me just a couple of weeks ago that he could hurt me even <laughs> on a video interview, he turns out to be a really lovely man uh, and very generous with his time and sharing of his stories and uh, performing uh, like an i like a music you could have on your iPhone. You called it out. <laughs> I mean, it was. Come on, that's that was amazing. That was a lot of fun. I had a great time on this interview. So sure, it was fun and fantastic, and I hope we get to speak to him again. But is it possible that we actually proved anything today regarding the 1980s? Hmm, let's see. 
we have proven beyond oh. a shadow of a doubt. Wow. Okay. That Lee Ving is both a maniac and a gentleman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I would pay to see that film. Maybe that'll be the next film he does. <laughs> All right. So, hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.